Donald Trump called him tough. Rush Limbaugh read one of his articles live on his radio show. Ann Coulter tweeted that article to her one and a half million followers and declared, every sentence is perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, former chief editor of the Jewish Press, Elliot Resnick. Welcome to the Elliot Resnick Show. With us today are two students of Rabbi Meir Kahana, Shmuel Sackett and Lenny Goldberg. I've interviewed both of them before, but during a week like this, I was not going to speak to a moderate, middle-of-the-road expert on Israel. This horrific massacre requires a biblical response, not a postmodern explanation on why we can't bomb Gaza like the Allies during World War II bombed Hamburg, Dresden, Tokyo, Hiroshima, and Nagasaki. Both Sackett and Goldberg are normal. That's about the highest compliment I can pay anyone these days. And so I invited them onto the show to discuss how Israel should respond to the Simchas Torah massacre. Shmuel Sackett is the director of the Am Yisrael Chai Foundation and a co-founder of Zohar Senu, Manhikut Yehudit, and Zehut. Cognizant of his busy schedule, we promised him a short interview, and that's what you will hear. Lenny Goldberg, however, is currently in the States, so we spoke to him at greater length. Lenny is a podcast host, he's the author of The Wit and Wisdom of Rabbi Meir Kahana, and he is the translator of most of Rabbi Binyamin Kahana's writings in English. You will hear the interview with Sackett first, followed by the interview with Lenny Goldberg. I know you have a plan that you had emailed to many of your followers. Before I get to your plan, though, let me ask you, as a student of Rabbi Meir Kahana, what do you think Rabbi Kahana would say to do at a time like this? Had we listened to Rabbi Kahana, we wouldn't be at a time like this because he spoke the language of the Torah. And the Torah is very, very clear that you cannot allow people to live in your country if they believe they are the rightful owners. This is why when Joshua entered the land with the nation of Israel after, you know, leaving Egypt and 40 years in the desert, they had to destroy the seven nations living there because there was no way to make peace with people who were living there and say, hey, who the heck are you, nation of Israel, children of Israel, coming into our land and taking over and and so on. They would have always harbored hatred towards us. And that is why the Torah is very, very strict with what we have to do to those seven nations. Now, the Arabs of today, they believe they say, we were here first, the Jews came from Europe, or they came uh, like I did from the United States, we were here, we're the people that have been in this land for hundreds of years, and therefore, it's our homeland. So they always will harbor hatred. And what happened this week was just a matter of time, and it's only going to get worse. And that is why we need to immediately implement the plan that I am about to discuss. Okay, so why don't you discuss it, but is your plan basically what Rabbi Meir Kahana would have suggested had he been around today as well? Yes, 100%. And let me explain what it is. So the first point is that we must conquer Gaza. Now, the problem is that the Israeli government is not talking about that. They're talking about teaching them a lesson and we're going to be very strict with them and the gates of purgatory have been opened. I want to see action. And action is that we don't do this again a few months later. People fail to remember that the last operation to end the terror in Gaza was called Operation Shield and Arrow. And after that it was finished, we heard the defense minister say, we have set Hamas back several years. We have destroyed their infrastructure. We've killed several of their top leaders. Do you know when that was? That was less than five months ago, May 14th, 2023. 
So what kind of nonsense is it? We sent them back years and we destroyed their infrastructure. What we need to do now is literally wipe Hamas off the map. And not just them, them, their supporters, whether it's financial supporters, their combatants, and every member of their family. And I know that's not a politically correct thing to say, but I do not care. Because anybody connected to Hamas in any way must be wiped off the face of the earth. What was done this past week was something I still can't get my head around. It hasn't sunk in. And it's unbelievable. And therefore, they must shake when they see an Israeli soldier coming. So Gaza must be reconquered and Israeli sovereignty must be established there. And then we must have at least 20 Israeli towns and cities and farms and businesses and synagogues and yeshivas all coming into Gaza. You know, Gaza is a beautiful area. It's right on the beach. You could build like Israel's Miami Beach. I know it sounds funny, but it is probably the most beautiful area. The the sand is white in Gaza, and it is absolutely incredible place. So once we reconquer it, once we establish sovereignty over it, once we destroy everybody connected to Hamas and we start building the place, then we can implement what I call the PAIR program, the program for Arab relocation and emigration. And that is where we take the remaining Arabs that are there and we tell them, listen, we are willing to help you find your dream elsewhere. You know, we all know how much the world loves the Arabs, right? The United Nations, they, they love the Arabs. So let them go to Europe and let them go to the United States, let them go to Canada, all the places that they love them. And we will send them there with a compensation package, which is humanitarian, we'll pay for their housing, we'll pay for their transportation costs, and we will set them up elsewhere. Gaza must be reconquered and established as a Jewish part of the Jewish state. As far as I can tell, Hamas is just the army of the Palestinian people. So shouldn't this war be declared on the Palestinian people of Gaza or on the area of Gaza? Why only on Hamas? That's an interesting question. And you're right, the Palestinian people are the ones who put them in charge. They're the ones that elected them. But what the Israeli army has to do is start with Hamas. I have no problem with the Arabs that are there that are not connected to Hamas. Again, remember the first thing I said, anybody connected to Hamas, any supporter, any financial donor, any member of their family, If you take a look at that, supporter, people that voted for Hamas, again, you're talking probably about 80% of the people that live in Gaza. And the remaining 20%, if they're not going to sit quietly, we put them part of this pair program and we arrange compensation for them to live their lives outside of the land of Israel. I think the problem is in war, we don't have bombs or bullets that are smart and know how to only kill people who are super guilty and not kill people who are super innocent. When America's fighting a war against Japan or against Germany, the only way to fight any war, you look at all the wars in the Torah, wars are almost by definition collective enterprises. They're not, I think Moshe Fagel once wrote, a war is not a court case. You know, it's just a different creature. Listen, what do they say? War is hell. Who said that? Patton or I don't know, one of the American generals. And it's true. But what was done this past Shabbat, it's just catastrophic. 
it was a slaughter beyond belief. Children, women, young girls getting raped and then being killed in front of their families. Things that they wouldn't even have in a horror show because you couldn't possibly put this onto a screen. It, it, it's too gross and too too violent. So that has to be answered in a very serious way. You know, there was a time where I, I moved to Israel in 1990. And I remember lived in a building that was on the seventh floor in a building in Netanya. And there was somebody who lived on the second floor, a guy named Yossi. And I was still talking to him one day, you know, sitting outside, just having a cup of coffee. And he told me, that after we conquered Gaza in 67, he was in Miluim, which is the reserves, and he was on patrol in Gaza by himself. And he saw two Arab men. It was about 10 o'clock at night, and he asked them, he, by the way, is a Moroccan Jew, and he speaks fluent Arabic. So he said to them in Arabic, stop, where are you going? Because Arabs traditionally go to sleep early. They wake up very early, like 3, 30, 4 o'clock in the morning. So what are two guys doing at 10 o'clock at night in Gaza, walking around. He uh, felt that they were, you know, suspicious. And he told me that one of them, since they were stopped by an Israeli soldier, one of them actually urinated down his leg because he was so scared that an Israeli soldier told him to stop. What would this soldier do to him? He lost control of his bodily fluids. This is how it used to be. Today, they're laughing at us and we need to turn it around, not just temporarily, as I discussed. We need to make sure that they know who is boss, who is running the country, and who does not ever again have a future in Eretz Yisrael. And now for my interview with Lenny Goldberg. As a student of Rabbi Kahana, what do you think Rabbi Kahana would do if he were alive today? What do you think he would say to do? I got to precede that by saying, my God, this is exactly what he warned about and they must go. He cried out at every level, on a halachic level, on a logical level, that we have to drive out the Arabs. If we don't do that, this is what we're going to see. As a matter of fact, in the book 40 years, he said that if we don't drive out the Arabs, we're going to see tragedies worse than the Holocaust. And I never understood that. Worse than the Holocaust? But yeah, because there's something called Galut Yishmael, that the Yishmael is worse than the Nazis in that way. They're crueler. They're not as efficient. And we see what they're like. They're bloodthirsty, para-adam, wild men. They cut you open. They like to see blood. The Orachayim talks about it as well. He knew them from Morocco. He talks about it on the Ir Nerdachat, that they have a taiva, an appetite for blood. So yeah, the rabbi was warning as much as he could, and they called him a racist. So first of all, this wouldn't have happened in the first place. But now that it's happened, obviously the rabbi would have been calling for the bombing of Aza indiscriminately, citizens, not citizens, because he always talked about the religious struggle. It's Islam against Judaism. It's not the Hamas against the IDF. It's not even Israel against the Arabs. It's Judaism against Islam. And Gaza is an Islamic state today. And so the citizens, it's not the Hamas. What's the Hamas? The guys with the uniforms, the generals? It's the citizens who believe in that religion. They voted the Hamas in 2006 democratically. So if you look at that in its own right, that's a reason to bomb them all. Because we're in a war and there's no such thing as, you know, just bombing the bad guys. And the rabbi always gave the example of when the Allied bombers bombed Dresden, right? They weren't killing just SS troops. They were killing innocent people as well. But you had to do it to win the war. Now, the Arabs are especially, if there was a nation, man, woman, and child mobilized to kill Jews. It's the Arab population. I mean, they step into the shoes of Amalek more than any other people you can imagine. 
Now we could see it in our living rooms. You know, Tarpat and the massacres in 1929, we heard about it. We saw pictures. Now you can see it on your phone. But there's not really a difference. They were always doing it. And so now we see uh, the rabbi was right. And now it's just Bidievid now. Not that they're here and they're killing us. Obviously, we have to clean them out and bomb Aza. And not the Hamas. It's not a matter of the Hamas. It's Aza. Because it's a terrible Chilul Hashem. The rabbi always talked about Kiddush Hashem and Chilul Hashem. And to see the Jews slaughtered and in cages in Aza. And the whole Muslim world is watching that. It's such a desecration of God's name. For them, Aza is a Kiddush Allah. You know, they're winning. Allah's on the top right now. And the only way to change that is to change what they're looking at. And we have to bomb them. So instead of seeing the Jews suffering, we have to see Aza bombed out with little kids, without food and water, running around in the rubble. And the world's going to condemn us, including Fox. Right now, Fox is for us because, you know, after you get massacred, we get sympathy. But when we're going to hit back the way we should, they will be against us. But the good Americans, they're for us. The good patriotic American, I hear what they say. They're looking for us to do it. We're like a light into the nations we can be. If we bomb the heck out of Aza, we'd be a oral agoyim. This is how you take care of radical Islam. You want to know how to do it? You're also suffering from it in Europe. And here, this is how you do it. Let the Jews show you the way. It's right there on TV now. Everybody's watching. It's a great opportunity. But I'm worried that, you know, we're not going to take advantage of it. We always mess it up and achieve a ceasefire. That's about all we can do each time. Right. I'm actually reading a, a book today about the um, end of World War II, how America won World War II after it defeated Nazi Germany. And it was relentless bombing of Japan. The greatest example is not even the atom bombs, is on March 10th, 1945, the bombing of Tokyo. 100,000 people in one night we killed. 100,000 in one night. So, I mean, you know, also people say, oh, what's the world going to say? Who cares about the world? I mean, if Iran and North Korea could survive without the rest of the world, Israel certainly can also. But it wouldn't even have to be a long, drawn-out process where the world starts reacting, not reacting. You do it in one night or two nights, and the world has no chance to react. It's just, it's over. They're not here anymore. You know, what are you going to do about it? Resurrect the dead? It's kind of like the nuclear reactor that Begin bombed, right, in 81 or 82. He bombed it. The world cried. And you know what? The next day, there was no nuclear reactor. And then something else happened right. in the news. You know, I remember Russia knocked down a... Japanese airlines, and that took the headlines. So you just have to do it. And God gave us the means to do it. I mean, this is unbelievable. He gave us the means. It's just a one-decision thing. That's an unbelievable concept. We never had the chance to do it. You just make that decision, and it's done. And right. the question is, are we going to do it? And all these people praying, they're praying to God. When you pray to God, God gave you all the weapons. What, do you, what more do you want him to do for you? It's true. Every time, in every war, he gave us the opportunity. He says, go do it. You know, that's the only reason I say Hallel for the state of Israel. The state has so many problems, but the fact that it's our fault that we didn't take advantage of. It's not Hashem's fault that we're not doing what we have to do. He opened up the doors for us. And Rabbi Benyamin Kahano, he writes one time, and people talk about, oh, some of this terrorism is happening because of our sins. He said, yes, because of our sin of, I think, violating You have an obligation, a mitzvah from the Torah, to guard yourself, and we're violating that left and right. So that's the sin, not for Tzniyaz or Shabbos. Right, it's a measure for measure. He gives an example that a, a group went on a, on a tiul and they forgot to bring water. And during the tiul, they're dying of thirst. They, they, they're so thirsty. And they said, What's, what sin did we do that we're suffering this way? Maybe we spoke Lashon around the way. Maybe we weren't sneers. You know what the problem was? We didn't bring water. That was the sin. But yeah, we're always looking for other, because it's really a, a, an exilic mentality that Judaism is, um, you know, the Arba Amos. So it's these personal mitzvahs. We don't take the national mitzvahs and think of it as part of Torah, like expelling the enemy 
all the mitzvahs of Gerto Shav, all those national mitzvot, because we don't look at that as part of Judaism. We don't attribute it to that. I want to read to you a source from the Maharal's commentary about collective punishment, which Rabbi Yaman Kahana quoted in one of his articles. I actually wonder if the father was ever aware of that, because he never quoted it. So it's possible that Rabbi Meir Kahana did not know this source, but his son certainly did. He's talking about the Levi and Shimon story. You know, how could Levi and Shimon massacre all these men in Shechem? And he basically says, well, look, Shechem was basically a nation, and during wars, it's nation against nation. And even though normally in wartime, you're supposed to warn them in advance and give them an option to settle for peace, he says that's only if they haven't done anything against you first. But when they have done something, you know, they raped Dina. Only one person sinned. Since that one person was part of a larger nation, they made the first breach. They started the war, basically. You're allowed to take revenge. The Hechi Nami is the same case with all the wars. For instance, Kagon Sower is a Midyanim. The Hashem tells uh, Moshe, and Moshe tells Jewish people, attack the Midyanim. The Maharal writes, Even though many Midianites didn't do anything wrong against the Jewish people, it makes no difference. Since they're all part of the same nation, that, that did bad to the Jewish people, you're allowed to go out to, to war against them. And the same thing is true with all wars. Right, that's a powerful maharal. He says, they're, they're treated collectively. That's a powerful source for elective punishment. One of my favorites. There's a lot of them. A lot of them, but that's a, that's a good one. That's the one I'm familiar with, so maybe share some other ones. That's the only one I'm really familiar with. No, just let him Hashim. You know, just an example. When God killed the Egyptians in the plague, uh, the firstborn, it says every firstborn was killed from Paro's firstborn to the one who sits in the dungeon. So they asked in Tanchuma, why did the Egyptians in the dungeon, why were they stricken with that plague? They didn't do anything. They're also suffering from the Egyptian empire. So he says this, because with every decree of Paro, heim samchu, they were happy. And they bring the verse, I think Mishle, that he was happy about the calamity will not be innocent. If you're happy, if you miss the head, identifying with the murderer, that's enough. You don't have to be the guy who does it. It usually takes a few brave ones to actually get up and do the mystery nefesh. But most of the people, they identify with it. They go to work and they're regular people, but they're guilty by identification. Somebody once gave me a great example. He said, you know, it's like when you learn a Masechet Siyum, right? One guy could finish the Masechet. Let's say you don't want to fast. So you go to the guy who finished the Masechet. And you can be Potter from the fast. Why? Because you identify with the Simcha. So you're also Potter. So I thought it was a great example. <laughs> no, it is a good example. I was thinking today, because I looked up, there was an article written in Tradition Journal like 15 years ago debating this whole issue. Is there collective punishment? Is there not? And he brought some sources. One way, some sources. Another way, there was Roshol Yisraeli, I think his name is. He wrote a whole article after, in 1953, when Israel was still somewhat normal, Sharon went into Jordan and killed 69 people. Two-thirds of them were women and children. And he was not canceled. He was not sacked. He was not fired. But Gorin basically supported it. I mean, he pretended like he didn't know about it. He said, oh, this must have just been some random Israelis. It wasn't the army. But it was the army, and he knew it. And everything was fine. But anyways, this Roshal Israeli wrote an article afterwards justifying the raid, which killed many women and children, and actually stopped Jordanian infiltrations into Israel for quite a period of time afterwards. But anyways, when I was reading this article about the different sources back and forth, back and forth, I just thought to myself, why don't we just make it easier? Let's open the Tanakh. Could you give me a single example in the entire Tanakh 
where it says the Jews could have wiped out their enemy, but they did not because they have greater morals. They refrained, they restrained themselves. Do you find a single example where it says in the Torah, we could have won a decisive battle, but the Jews refrained and didn't go all the way? Just not one, not one. Not one. The only time you have something close to it is when it was wrong, when Achav, he was supposed to wipe out Ben-Adad, and Ben-Adad, we already lost the war. So he's running away, and they said, you know, we heard that the kings of Yisrael are Malkei Chesed. They're kings of Rachamim. It's a story in the Book of Kings. Let's go to Achav, and we'll, we'll say we're sorry. Maybe we'll have mercy on us, because we know they're friars, those Jews. They're Malkei Chesed. And sure enough, Achav, Ahab, they come to him, and he says, my brothers. And he didn't hurt them. And he was punished for it severely by the prophet right away for not finishing off Ben-Adad. So it's teaching us you got to finish him off. Collective punishment all the way. Whoever you leave there is going to haunt you later on. I mean, there's so many different sources that Kahana brings in his last book, The Jewish Idea. But one, just in, I think, the fourth or fifth passage of Sefer Shoftim, it says the Jews cut off the big toes and thumbs of one of the Canaanite kings. And the Rabbach says right there, it was basically to instill fear into the rest of the kings, letting them know we mean business. Right. That's what Yovan Surya did. And David himself against Moab. I think it's uh, Shmuel Bet chapter 5, or maybe chapter 8. And he tortured Moab. He tortured nations as a call of deterrence factor. You wanted to be scared of you. That's how you fight a war. That's why you have to get back to the Tanakh, man. These generals, and this is something that worries me. I always used to think that we don't finish them off all the time because what will the world say? But I realize Jonathan Pollard mentioned this. It's not that only. Their ethics don't allow them to indiscriminately bomb Arabs. It's against their conscience. This is what I'm worried about. They're progressive, these generals. They're the kind of people who all for that judicial reform, you know, against it. It's those people who are running the show and it's against their morals to do what has to be done. So that's a scary thing. Plus, now America's involved, which is also a reason that they're going to put the brakes on us. Why do we get America involved? I don't understand why we want them involved. We need them to knock off the Hamas. What do they have? The Hamas has an air force. They got hang gliders. They have tanks. They got pickup trucks. What the hell do we need America for? Sal can take care of it. And everybody's so happy. I got a call from my mother-in-law. Oh, Biden's speaking now. She thinks I'm proud of him. What? We got to look into America for this, for the bunch of thugs. So, I mean, what are the hopes for? Because, look, I mean, you and I both know if you put, let's say, the 500 settlers of Hebron in charge, this wouldn't be a problem. Or the, the settlers of Batayan in charge. You know, there are many people in Israel, if you put them in charge, things would be just fine. But these people are not allowed to be in charge. They're not allowed to run for Knesset. What's the prospects for the future? I, mean, I don't know. I, I mean, at this point, because what we're in right now, I can only hope that the people in power now do it. I have to pray for it because I'm so, I, I want to see those bastards get it already. I, I can't wait. So I'm praying somehow that God gives him the sechel. Not for us, but for Hashem's sake, to change the, what's being shown. Instead of the Jewish victims, we see Arab victims. For his holy name's sake. Not for us. We don't deserve it. But for God's holy name that's been desecrated by this massacre, which is a terrible massacre. Don't underestimate it. This, you know, we were shocked by the Fogel massacre. This is a hundred times over. That's what happened now. We cannot. So I'm just looking right now. God, just drive him out. I just got a WhatsApp before going on with you that the Arabs are fleeing into Egypt. I don't know if that's true, but I'm getting like WhatsApps from the army. You know, if my kids are in the front there. So I'm hoping that they don't become cannon fodder and they fight the Arabs. What, what I mean by that, what they always do in Aza is they send the soldiers in, you know, into these houses instead of air bombing at first. And then they send them into sitting docks because they're worried about hurting innocents. And that's just sacrificing our soldiers on the altar of, you know, their sick morals. And I have to pray that doesn't happen again. Right. Curtis LeMay, the one who was in charge of the bombing of Tokyo in charge. And uh, 
it will be a different story. But I mean, that's what just, it's so upsetting also the lack of appreciation for, like you were saying about the Chilu Hashem, Rabbi Kahani always quote the Rashi in the Sefer Yecheskel, he writes very clearly that when the Jewish people are being embarrassed, God's Kaviyachol being embarrassed. Right, Shifu, Tam Yisrael Chilu Shemom, the humiliation of Jewish people is the humiliation of God. Right, and then I think he quoted also, Gemara says that when a Jew is punched in the jaw, it's like Kaviyachol, God himself being punched in the jaw. And these people have no appreciation for like the symbolism of what's been happening. It's not just the deaths. Of course, I mean, deaths are horrific beyond imagination. It's also what the deaths represent and the brazenness. They can go into a Jewish state and just do this and take Jewish women and violate them. I mean, it's just so infuriating. I mean, just for that, we should kill 100,000, just for the humiliation part. Forget even the deterrent part, just the humiliation, just as revenge. We should do this, I think. For sure. That's what people have to watch now. After seeing the Jews suffer like that, it's a chul Hashem. It's as if the God of Israel either is weak or doesn't exist. And the only way to show the nations that Hashem, the God of Israel, is the real thing is through koch, strength, and bombing Gaza to smithereens. Not the Hamas, Gaza. That's an Islamic state, by the way, that the Israeli government built up because they're always managing the enemy. They never wanted to win. We're going to just kick the can and manage the enemy. That's how they deal with all the Arabs in Israel. They don't want to win. They want to take a decisive step because they're afraid to do it. And now this is what happens when you manage an enemy. Eventually they're going to explode and the cockroaches are coming out of the bottle and they can do what they did in Aza to all the places in Yudav Shamron. People are getting ready for battles over there too. They could do the same thing anywhere in Israel, not just in the Gaza border. Rabbi Kahana wrote years ago that the sad truth is that there are many places in Israel Jews scared to go and there's not a single place in the entire Israel that an Arab is scared to go. That's right. That's a Chil Hashem in itself. They walk around free, you know, they sleep well at night. They don't have fences like we do. No shin gimel, nobody watching. They sleep the sleep of the righteous. And we're walking around with our heads, you know, make sure we watch our backs all the time. Right, and you're, you're, and, saying, well, you're correct, of course. It's not about Hamas. Hamas is the army of the Palestinian people. It's like in World War II declaring war on, on the Japanese hawks or on the Nazis, but not on Germany. You can't win wars against... Wars are collective enterprises. It's not, you know, individual, individual. Are you guilty? And that's what John Matinsky had a great point years ago. He said when you divide between the guilty and the innocent, and he was talking about World War One. I, I said, because John Matinsky fought in World War One. he said, you're telling me that, that that 20-year-old kid fighting the Turkish army, he's guilty? What makes him guilty? You know, if you go to the end result of this logic, Ariel Sharon was correct. When he took out all the Jews from disengagement. He said, don't touch the soldiers. I made the decision. I'm the only guilty one. And then that's true. At the end of the day, the only one guilty for war is the president or king, whatever country. So that means one person's guilty and everyone else is innocent. So, I mean, then you can't have a war then. Go kill the president. That's it. That's right. You know, only God can distinguish. You know, in the Song of the Sea, it says they went down like lead. They were trashed around like straw. And they sunk like a stone. So which was it? So it said that Sadi came. They sunk right away. It didn't hurt. The Rishayim were trashed around. So Hashem is able to distinguish, but he still killed them. He still drowned them all. Because now, this is so applicable to the Arabs, especially because we're talking about an idea of Islam. It's not just a regular national enemy. It's a religious enemy who believe in Islam. Every Arab citizen there who believes in the Quran, who hates the Jew, it's part of their religion, part of their identity. And so Gaza represents an Islamic state that has spit in the face of the Jewish people. And we have to take revenge for its own sake. Right. I don't want to correct you. I could be wrong. But from my watching of Rabbi Merkahana's interviews over the years and his books, the Arabs had not been so religious back then. When he was fighting them in the 70s and 80s, it was more of a secular nationalist movement. They've become much more religious since his passing. He was assassinated in 1990, which makes it all much worse, actually, you know, because... Yeah, right. 
It's true. That's a change in the Arab world. You, know, you have Mubarak and Sadat. They're like the secular Arabs, but there's a change now. You're right. To more the uh, Islamic states. That's the trend. It's much more dangerous. It's much worse. And I think for the redemption process, it makes sense. It's a religious war. We're in a religious war. The problem is we have to look at it that way. If we make a Judaism against Islam, Hashem has to help us because we're invoking his name. But if it's just the Israelis against the Hamas, why should Hashem help us? But when we come in the name of Hashem, he has no choice, so to speak, but to defend his holy name. Right. So maybe you're even a little more extreme than I am. I'm not sure because I would limit my fight against Islam just to the land of Israel. I would leave Saudi Arabia out of it for now or something. No. Or- yeah, I don't mind. Let me leave me alone. They'll leave us alone. But the ones right. who attack me in my borders, slaughtering our people. Right, 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 right. And I always say, I think there is no less innocent population in the history of warfare. And I always bring this example. If an American had been dropped into Berlin or Tokyo in the middle of World War II, he would not have been lynched because your average German, your average Japanese didn't hate America. They were at war with America. They didn't hate individual Americans. They put him in probably a prisoner of war camp or something, and he'd be in prison for the rest of the war. He wouldn't be lynched. If you or I with the Yamako walk into Ramallah or any city like that in the West Bank of Gaza, we'll be lynched. And lynches are not committed by the army. Lynches are committed by regular, ordinary people on the street. Spontaneous hate for the Jews. This is Amalek. I mean, it's the closest thing you're ever going to get. And by the way, someone asked me, he said, I don't understand why we're censoring all these video clips of horrific, I don't know, I don't even know what the clips show, but he said we should be showing this all over the place. It's We should be outraged. Why are we shielding these videos? Oh, it's too horrific for us to see. They should be out there. Well, I'll tell you, it's hard to sleep. I saw a couple just popped into my feed. Wow. We should know about it. To keep, stay angry. Maybe it's good to keep your edge. Maybe it is important to see it. I remember with Nati Ozeri. He was a student of Rabbi Kahan. He was murdered on Tubishvat. He was a Talmud Chacham, a real scholar warrior. And he was murdered by Arabs on his hilltop. And he requested that he has his face revealed. You know, you usually cover them. The Arabs actually, you see their face. He wanted his face shown at the funeral. And that's what we did. And it was to shock. He actually wrote that in his will. He had a will that he wanted. I guess he told his wife about it. His students knew about it. And they insisted on it. And that's what we did. And yeah, you look, you see him and you'd be shocked. And that's what we want, because then it's not a routine, because at that time, Jews were getting killed all the time. And we don't want it to be another routine burial. So, yeah, shock us. And we saw him, you know, we saw his face revealed. And he did that for the same kind of reason. Keep it in your mind and be shocked. I don't want to tax our own. Well, maybe I do. Maybe I shouldn't at this time and place. But I think it's important for us to remember this example. And there was another example during the Second Intifada where we quote unquote, did something which was not halachically correct when that baby, shall have it passed, was killed in Hebron, shot in the forehead. So the settlers of Hebron said, we're not burying her till the army retakes the hill from which she was shot. And all of a sudden, all these rabbis, same thing with the Natano Zeri when his face was uncovered, the same rabbis who say nothing when Jews are slaughtered left and right, all of a sudden they came out of the woodworks, you're not allowed to do this. Halacha says you have to bury the person right away. Halacha says you can't uh, uncover the face of the person being buried. Really? Now you're waking up. Now you're waking up after it was so infuriating. Because that's what they're good at. They're good at the pill pool and halacha, you know. But when it comes to national disgraces, that's not their field. When it comes to Kiddush Hashem and that's not their field. Their field is what's the halacha on a burial or covering the face or not covering the face, the toast vote, you know. That's the problem. We're stuck in the little details instead of looking at the big picture sometimes. Yeah, it was humiliating, and thank God, that I think there was one, I think Rabbi Lior or some other rabbi in Hebron said, I don't understand, if you could break Shabbos to save a life, you certainly could delay the burial of a baby a few days to save a life. What kind of nonsense is this? 
And that's like, you know, when, when the Jews go to Shechem to visit Yosef's Kefir, all of a sudden these rabbis get up there and say, oh, you're not allowed to put yourself in danger. How about getting up there and telling the Israeli government you're not allowed to not deal with Arab murderers who are sh- shooting at Jews going to Yosef's Kefir? Instead of telling the Israeli government to kill the Arabs, they're telling Jewish settlers, don't pray at Yosef's Kefir. Like, it's all backwards. It's backwards. It's godless mentality. Again, they don't want to take the offense. It was so used to defense all the time. And so they're looking at things just from Pikuch Nefesh, Pikuch Nefesh. There's no Misirut Nefesh, there's just Pikuch Nefesh. You know, Pikuch Nefesh is kill the enemy, not refrain from diving Yosef's cave there. Look, the rabbis of Adi Yosef was for Oslo, giving up land. You know, big rabbis that give up land for peace. Yeah, and then very soon I'm sure you're going to hear some rabbis say, even though it's a very difficult time for us, so we have to refrain, we're not like them, we can't stoop to their level, and we need to retain our morals and die. And like we kind of said all the time, we left Minsk and Pinsk, and we came to Israel, and we recreated Minsk and Pinsk. Right. You know, when the shock wears off, and then the bombings are going to be what you're going to see. And then everybody's going to get cold feet. Even Fox News will start turning on us when we really bomb the heck out of them. And then you're going to see... We got no friends anymore. Everybody's going to forget about what happened. Time does that. Just like the Katusha rockets fall, we go out and try to knock off the Hezbollah. And then everybody forgot why we were in there. So people are going to just see those bombings of Aza all the time. And uh, they're going to forget why we're doing it. And we can't worry about that. Yeah, no, we have the whole world support now. But someone wrote on Twitter, he said, Clinton supporting Israel, Obama supporting Israel, Trump supporting Israel, NATO supporting Israel. He says, there must be something wrong here. And I commented on his Twitter feed. I said, you're right. There is something wrong here. The reason they're supporting Israel is because Israel is very weak. I said, trust me, put the settlers of Hebron in charge, and you would see the whole world would not be in Israel's favor. So they're only in, the, in our corner because we're not doing the right thing. Plus, people like that sympathy. You know, a lot of people, oh, wow, you know, the victim thing. They kind of like that people feel sorry for us, and we get the sympathy of the world. They're comfortable as a victim. Not that they want it to happen, but it's like they're comfortable in that position. Look how everybody loves us now when we're dead. Yeah, and I don't really care about the world very much at all. But going back to the point I just made a few minutes ago, if you cared about the world a little bit, instead of releasing videos of your army demolishing some stupid building somewhere, why don't you release some videos of some Jews being raped and murdered? You know, that might work if you actually want to make an impression. Well, it's out there without them sending it. If that doesn't give motivation, nothing will. I, mean, I haven't seen any. Breitbart refuses to publish them. And Breitbart's um, most of the news you can get. I'm not a big internet guy. A little Twitter, a little Facebook, and it came through my feed. It's still resonating in me, what I saw. It's really bad. Yeah, no, look, you and I don't need to really see it, but there are a lot of people who do need to see it, I think. Yeah. I don't know. It's just very, very frustrating. Go ahead. No, no, it's frustrating. It's dangerous, and I just really want to see that Nikama. You know, it says Moshe Rabbeinu didn't want to die until he saw the Nikama against Midian. Mitaveh le Nikama. He lusted for Nikama. He had to see it. And he said, I don't want to die before I see it. And when I see that Nikama, then I'll die. Why? Because he knew that as long as there's no Nikama, then God's name isn't complete. Then there's no justice in the world. Without Nikama, ain't Din, ain't Dayan. Only when Hashem does Nikama, the nations who did that to us, then Hashem's name is complete. When he punishes the nations, his name is magnified. Only through that. They're not impressed that our Gomorrah and Solomon's wisdom. Maybe that's later on after we conquer them. They'll come and see the temple and they'll be impressed. But first you have to conquer them. That's what they understand. And that's when before there was Solomon, there was a David who conquered them. And after you subdue them and conquer them, then they can appreciate the wisdom of the Torah. But first they understand just Koch. Let me ask you one last question. What would you do about all the hostages? I don't know. 
I think it's lost in either way because they're in tunnels. I think there's no way to stop this. This is very well planned. And um, you can't sacrifice the war effort and try to save the hostages like they did with Shalit. This is 130 hostages. I don't know. I, I saw the families interviewed. It's heartbreaking. It's horrible. I don't know. I mean, halavai that Israel did an Entebbe maneuver and somehow was able to save them. But I don't think they're going to stop the war effort because of that. Because it's hard to know where they are. They, this is very sophisticated stuff that they pulled off. And it's going to be hard to get to them. They got tunnels and they separated them. It's a horrible situation. Right. I had like two ideas. One was the more weaker option, which is just if they're making demands, give it to any one of their demands. And then carpet bomb them to the Stone Age, but only after you've met their demands. So, you know, if you have to release a thousand prisoners from prison, do that because you'll be killing them later anyways. But the Arabs probably would be smart enough to avoid that. The other option is to go on the offense and say, you know, like you said, they're probably lost anyways. So they have a hundred hostages. We said 130. So we kidnapped a thousand three hundred. So 10 hostages of theirs for every one of ours and try to include as many wives and children of the terrorists as possible and say, the ball's in your court now. You touch a hair on the head of any of these 130, we're killing your 1,000 to 300. Maybe that will work. You know, I don't know. Like you said, it's very low chance either way, but at least maybe go on the offense and say, we're not going to sit there. There's going to be a price for you to pay. Your wives, your children. And we'll kill them on TV just like you'll kill ours on national TV. We'll kill yours on national TV. Like the Etzel used to whip the British. You take our prisoners, we'll do it to you. You hung our guys, we'll hang your guys. Yeah, but they did two for two. I'm, I'm saying 10 for one, though. Yeah, Elliot, I got to make you Sarbi Tachon, Minister <laughs> of Defense. Thank you. Well, you know, Rory Rekhan used to say all the time, he said, he said, the Intifada, we can't stop the Intifada. Rekhan said, make me Defense Minister for one week, and trust me, there's no Intifada anymore. That's right. That's right. Now the, the chutzpah is so great, though. We've created a situation where, you know, Rabbi Khan used to say that I was a cancer. I can't you cut it out and throw it out or you die because it spreads. I could say now that it has spread, okay? I'll show you how the cancer has spread. They're everywhere in Israeli society. You know, right now there's problems in the stores for food. Why? Because who drives the trucks? The Arabs drive the trucks. We depend on them for everything. Tzahal depends on them for driving stuff. So the cancer has so spread that I hope the body doesn't die already because we've become super dependent on them. I think we can manage. For the meantime, I think we can manage. Thank God we're much stronger than them. But uh... We have to hope for an open miracle that God implants some seichel into Netanyahu's brain. I don't know. Or somehow get rid of him and somehow get people who are, you know, like you in charge. So the country is a proud Jewish country. I'll tell you a bad sign that he could have went with Lieberman. Lieberman was for a little more aligned to our way of thinking. Instead, he went with Gantz and Lapid for an emergency coalition. That is not a good sign because that means that, first of all, he dilutes the responsibility from himself. He becomes in the middle of the road with those guys, which says to me, I don't think he's going to do what has to be done. I'm not optimistic about it. No, me neither. Well, look, he said the war's going to be long and difficult. No, it should be short and easy. It's what it should be. Well, I think he means if, because there's still Arabs inside Israel, terrorists inside, and they've got the northern border to worry about. But you're right. Sahel should be able to take care of it. We beat armies in 67, 73. We can't beat a terror organization with pickup trucks and hang gliders. It's just Hashem's will. It's all up to Hashem. You know, the same army that could defeat Arabs in six days, armies almost got destroyed in 73. And look what happened now. It's all up to God. Right. And maybe, you know, people hate when people play God. So maybe I shouldn't be playing God. But 
Israelis are so arrogant. We have such great intelligence. So we, you know, we don't care if some Jews die here and there, you know, a few Jews a year, because overall we have such great intelligence, we can protect our people. Maybe God showed you, no, maybe your intelligence isn't so great. I don't know. Look, my greatest fear for a long time was, I mean, it's almost not nice for me to say it, but when I was a kid, I grew up with Oslo. So I always thought things were going to come to a head. It's going to be one day we're just, the Arabs were, were going to attack and we we're going to have to fight back and the whole thing was going to be over one day. And the last like 10 years, I realized that no, we actually could go like this for 100 years, a low scale where every single year 10 Jews die, but it never reaches a boiling point because we're always strong enough to make sure it's not a real problem. So we live, yeah, once a year we go into bunkers, they rain rockets on us, and some Jews get stabbed to death while he's hiking, but it's only a few a year. And to me, this is so humiliating that it's almost like it would be better if it came to a head where we'd be forced to do something. Well, if this doesn't do it, nothing will. But I know what you're saying. Even the religious leaders of the settlements, they're almost willing to absorb those blows and have Jews killed because, hey, we got some more settlements. That's what they say. And, you know, the sick thing is, I've been to Poor since 1990s, but right there in Shechem, I see it. You know how many Arab cars you see they never used to see? They're dominating us. They're overrunning us just naturally. Forget about terrorism. Just going on the 60 route to Jerusalem. It used to be 10 to 1 Jewish cars to Arab cars. And the Arab car was some taxi with eight Arabs inside it. Now, the other way around, they're 20 to 1 Arab cars, new fancy cars. They drive like animals. You just sit there on the junction there and it's 20 to 1. So they're overrunning us. So with all these settlements, another settlement here and another settlement there, the Arabs are building those settlements. They're growing in Yudan and Shomron. They're building bigger cities. They're getting Parnassah from us. The Arabs from Azza, by the way, were getting Parnassah. They were leaving Azza to work. The Hamas was in connection with the government, let out thousands of workers so they work, and then Azza won't be, uh, you know, Hamama, this crowded place. Let the Arabs work. And so the government's thinking, hey, the Hamas isn't ready for war. What they're interested in is money. So we kept giving them money. That's what they did. And they totally didn't expect anything like this. Believe it or not, they're so lackadaisical. They think they can buy them with money. They didn't know that Hamas is going for war. It's true. There's a guy, Tzvi Cheskeli. You got to look him up. Tzvi Cheskeli is an Israeli journalist. He's an expert in Arab affairs. He infiltrated into the Arabs for years. And he was been talking this for a long time. And this government just has a different mindset. They have like a Western mindset. Like you can buy him. You, you can just, you know, give him work. And they just quiet, little, buy a little more quiet, a little more quiet. That's all. And they did not expect this. That's one of the reasons it happened because they weren't ready for it. They're lackadaisical. Let me ask you, is there anything settlers could do on their own, not to solve the larger problem because they can't, they don't have tanks themselves, they don't planes themselves, but a lot of settlements and settlers have their own local problems, which often they can't deal with because the government doesn't let them. They arrest them, they stop them. Maybe now is the time they can solve some, some of their own local problems while the government's busy? You mean with the Arab locals? You yeah. mean? Yes. Yeah, maybe. Listen, a lot of these kids are fighting on their own hilltops now with the Arabs, and yeah, there's a lot more freedom now to not worry about repercussions when the focus isn't on them as much. Now there's a whole war against the Arabs. Now it's easier maybe to um, to do something. But mostly that we're in a situation where we're getting ready for them to attack us, just like it happened in Aza, and we got to get ready for it. But we're letting them know that this isn't the IDF here. We don't go by those rules. Come come to us. You know, there's a whole letter that they put out. Maybe I'll send it to you in Arabic and Hebrew that we're waiting for you. We heard you want to come from Shechem. So you have a bunch of pictures of these hilltop guys. And they're saying, come on, come on down, we'll show you, we'll show you. And the image of the hilltop youth as a crazy is actually a good thing. Binyamin Khan always used to say that the settlers shouldn't always worry about their image. We think we have to show hasbara, hasbara. Oh, we're regular people like you. No, no, let them think we're out of our minds. Let the Arab think that we're Meshuggah. 
because that's the deterrent in the end. The IDF doesn't deter them with their nice guns and uniforms and stuff. They know that the hands are tied of the IDF. But the settlers, they have this image of being nuts and uh, fanatics, and that's a good thing. That's what keeps us safe. Yeah, and Benjamin Kahana's last campaign before he was killed was basically telling the army, please leave the West Bank. If you can't protect us, we'll protect ourselves. And please leave us our weapons. But he said, even if you don't leave us so many weapons, we'll still probably do a better job than you will. So just leave it to us. Because we'll have Ruach. You see, the King David had five stones. He had the Ruach. You have a Shem with you. We can talk about it another time, but it's interesting that Benjamin Kahana came to the same conclusion as his father. His father called it Medinat Yehuda. We got to set up something separate. Binyamin, 10 years later, he packaged it differently, but it was the same kind of conclusion that we don't have to depend on the government of Israel for everything. We have to set up on our own. And it could make sense, actually, because it's two different cultures and they don't know what to do with us anyway. You know, if they want to throw us out of there, they have no way to put us. Even the Gush Katif expulsion, they didn't know what to do with the residents of Gush Katif. And it can make sense on a lot of levels, but the Jews in the Shomron and you, they have to realize it first and have to wean themselves off the government and the army and try to be more self-sufficient. And there'll be no choice eventually, because even now the army can't protect us. I, I said last question before, but you reminded me of something else, so maybe we could briefly discuss this. I've read in several places, I don't know if it's true, that it's hard to own a gun in Israel, because a lot of people think, oh, in Israel, everyone has guns. And I, I've been reading different places that's actually not so true anymore. Well, first, let me tell you, I'm not allowed to have one because of Mama Kahana guy. Maybe that Itamar Ben-Gvir, he can get me one. He's good for that. He's gotten Polar on a gun, and he's trying to get guns out. But, you know, I'll tell you something sad. You know, guns, they don't do that much in a real situation. You need those long automatic rifles. We got guns. It's not that hard to get one. But you miss a lot because you're tense. When you shoot with a gun, you know, like this, the nerves get you, and you miss. And I've seen guys miss. Three guys who are decent shooters. They practice... And you miss. It's a, like a pea shooter, a gun, compared to these Kalachnikovs that these guys got. So we got guns, but that's not going to be enough. Man. We need M16s and we need a lot of ammo to really do what we got to do. And the Israeli government will give it to you guys? Well, they're trying to because the settlements are depleted. I mean, I don't want to – it's not enough. It, it's just a joke what they have in the settlements for the response teams. But now I'm hoping, I'm getting word that they're starting to replenish their supplies. But it's pathetic. Now, because all the men are out in the front now, the settlements are pretty abandoned, and at least we got to have guns. And so hopefully uh, we'll get guns, because you're going to have a tarpat. God forbid. When it, they can overrun us from Khawara or where we, we live near Arab villages. They can just in sheer numbers overrun us. When we have a couple of soldiers, the Shin Gimel over there, what the hell is that? So we have to be ready on our own. But the deterrent fact is everything. That they think we're Kahana, that's the best thing you can be. They were, we're crazy. We're nuts. We'll hang them up by their you know, testicles for all to see. That. That's a good thing. And it's so crazy because in America and other places in the West, the argument against guns it always is, well, people commit murder. But thank God, as far as I understand, the murder rate in Israel is super duper low. Jews don't actually usually murder other Jews. So that's not a problem. So if murder is not a problem, why? Well, what are you scared about giving? And all these people are in the IDF. They know how to use guns properly. Just give them the guns. What's the problem? They're starting to. You do have a lot of citizens with guns. That's why a lot of times an Arab does something. It's much better than in the States. A lot of times a guy will shoot and shoot. There's nobody armed. Usually in Israel, if something happens, you'll see one of the citizens has a gun and it'll take the guy out. So they do give guns. Even a guy not in the IDF, they'll grant the guns. But I'm telling you, in a situation of like what happened in Aza now, you need more than guns. You need automatic rifles. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. God willing, things will be good. And end with another quote from Ari Kahana. He's, he was very tough on people. He said, people in Israel say, yeah, tov, yeah, tov. He said, no, it will not be good. He said, unless we make it good. So That's you know, right. Although Think I of the tochacha and kitavo. And we have a lot more curses than blessings. They're not saying in the Torah it's going to be good. They get about 60 curses in contrast to about 12 blessings. The Torah is being very, very pessimistic and saying it's not going to be good. It'll only be good if we do good. That's the Jewish way. Right. And we make it good. As the government won't do something, we have to figure out a way of getting a new government because it's, just, it's not sustainable. This is our chance. Everybody's watching. So just think about it. Everybody's watching Israel. It's all over the news. Like, what are we going to do? And I'm telling those good American, the Trump types, they want us to kick butt. They really do. We could be a lighter to the name. It could be such a kiddush Hashem. Halavai. I agree. Yes. I mean, I mean. All right. That does it for us. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing to it and giving it a good rating and a nice review if you're so inclined. I hope you enjoyed the episode and have a great day or a great night, depending on when you're listening to this podcast.